You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Dr. Cassandra Veaton is president and CEO of the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California. Recently, we were joined by their chief scientist, Dr. Dean Radin, about his wonderful new book called Supernormal. Dr. Veaton is a researcher herself, a scientist at the Mind-Body Medicine Research Group at California Pacific Medical Center Research Institute. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and has been with ION since 2001, previously serving as its executive director of research. Dr. Cassandra Veaton is co-author of Living Deeply, The Art and Science of Transformation in Everyday Life, a 2008 release, and author of Mindful Motherhood, Practical Tools for Staying Sane During Pregnancy and Your Child's First Year. Thank you for joining us, Cassandra. You're welcome. Nice to meet with you. There we go. Now we hear you. Um, it's a it's a wonderful opportunity. I'm a big fan of what you all do, and um, to think that Edgar Mitchell, it's now 40 years ago, isn't it? That's right. Over 40, yeah. So it's been a long time since astronaut Edgar Mitchell founded IONS. Let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, Dr. Vitan, about the word noetic and science and noetic sciences together, why these particular terms to describe what you all do? Well, when Edgar Mitchell got back from his um, moonwalk, he was the sixth person to walk on the moon, and he had this experience on his way back to Earth like many astronauts have, but his was special where he was viewing the Earth from space and had this very deep subjective experience of first of all, feel, feeling himself one with everything he saw and understanding that he was made of the same things as the stars and the earth and the sun and the moon, which he was observing from the space capsule. And then also feeling this sense of despair as he looked upon the earth and realized that the violence and inequity of resources and um, you know all of the conflicts that he saw on planet earth were really caused by limitations in human consciousness. He came back to Earth and tried to find a term that might, I don't know, be adequate to what he experienced. And he looked hard, and he found the term noetic, which is a Greek word that means the inner knowledge. And so science, in a way, is outer knowledge, where you measure and you can observe and look at things in the outer world, in the natural world, and, you know, you can say, okay, this is what this is. But then there's a form of inner knowledge, intuition, dreams, imagination, um, the way that we look at things. And he termed this noetic as the Greeks did. And so if you put noetic sciences together, you're both studying the internal experience of reality and what reality is and asking that question. And the science is how we go about measuring those. So so like I think everybody in the new paradigm movement has always hoped for this time period when we would see this crossover between spirituality and scientific research, which you all do beautifully. I mean, I started looking at the case studies you've conducted. Can we talk a little bit about some of those? Sure. Well, I, I noticed, for instance, conscious business is one of the case studies you've you've conducted. Tell us what you found. Well, um, I'm not sure what you're referring to, but yeah, definitely what we've tried to do over the last 40 years is bring together the inner form of knowing with the outer form of knowing. So uh, there was a time about 400 years ago where Descartes said, 
okay, let's just make science the study of the external world and make religion and spirituality the study of the internal world. And, you know, that was a good idea for a long time because at that time religion reigned as the true source of knowledge and it was illegal to actually observe people's phenomena, their experiences, their observations. And what Descartes did was said, well, okay, there is a way that we can look at the natural world that's different than the spiritual world, and so let's make the split. And so, as I said, that was a good idea at the time, but now 400 years later we're saying, you know, here's the thing. If you look at the external world, that's one thing. If you look at the internal world, that's another thing. But we're getting to the point where we really need to look at both. And so when we look at people's experiences of intuition or direct knowing or let's look at experiences like where you know when someone's calling when the phone rings. You know, maybe 20 years later after someone you knew, you know, you you haven't talked to them in a long time, but the phone rings and you've been thinking about them and it's them. Or maybe you have a sense of knowing that someone's in trouble that you love and you learn later that it's true. Or you think that you have a way of making a decision that's not based on information from the five senses, but it's a gut feeling. It's, a, it's an intuition. It's a hunch. Those are all ways of knowing that are internal. And we think that it's time for science to be able to delve into those ways of knowing. Well, and when you look at some of the studies you've done, I mean, one one of the posts that you've written is is about the evidence for universal consciousness. Maybe we can take a few minutes about that. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I was asked to write this post because somebody said, is there any evidence for universal consciousness? And that's a really big word. You know, what does universal consciousness mean? Well, I mean, there is a way that everyone on Earth has some feelings that are similar. Um, you, no matter what religion you come from, what culture you come from, what background you come from, everyone knows what you mean when you say, do you love your child? Or do you love your elders? Or do you feel like there's a purpose for you on this planet? Or, you know, is there something more than just what we observe with our physical senses? Um, many, many people on Earth have the same feeling. And so when you ask the question, is there a universal consciousness, it seems like, just as Carl Jung said in his famous psychological theory of the collective unconscious, you know, people have these experiences where they dream something or they imagine something or they experience something, and they have a way of knowing that is not necessarily uh, readily available to them through the five senses, but they do experience it in their internal world, and then somehow it turns out to be true. Another area that you have written about and that is posted, and I encourage people to go there, we'll talk a little bit about some of the amazing things that are at the website itself, including some pictures about the consciousness transformation model. But um, I like this, and Dean talked a bit about this particular research, which was entitled Feeling the Future, Experimental Evidence for Anomalous Retroactive Influences on Cognition and Affect. Now, that's a long title, but simply, it's a remarkable case study. Why don't you share with us more about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that many people who have meditated for long periods of time and also many people who are just in everyday life feel like they might have had some hunch about the future that was real. So there's this idea that 
you know, in um, meditators who have meditated for a long time, they have this sense of timelessness, or even people who haven't really, um, every once in a while we, we reach this place in our being where we think, you know, time is, we're, we're all slaves to time. You know, we're all slaves to the clock and to our watches and to our iPhones. And, you know, we're, we're saying, okay, we know the past. We can't know the future. But then again, some people have intuitions about the future. And so we wanted to investigate, are any of those true? Is it possible that there is, in fact, a timeless nature to some aspect of reality? So what we did was we put people into experiments where we said, okay, you're going to see something in the future. It's going to be an image on the screen, let's say, and just relax and let yourself watch these images. And so in this case, it wasn't really about whether or not they could guess what was coming. It was just whether their physiology could show what was coming. And so there are three conditions. One is a very emotional image, like a gun pointed at your head or a rattlesnake striking there's another one that's kind of like a neutral image, like a lamp or a stream. There's another that's kind of a happy image, like a bunch of puppies or a baby laughing. And what we showed was that people who were encountering the first, the very emotional images, had an increase in the autonomic measures of their physiology about 300 milliseconds or a second prior to that image, you know, being presented. Mm-hmm. And so what we're saying here is there may be some reality to this idea that time doesn't only go into the future. Maybe there's a way that we all anticipate a little bit of what's coming just a tiny bit before it's happening. And and as I recall, part of the experiment that I found most fascinating was that when people were shown these flashcards with images, first they did the test having not rehearsed the images, and then after the test they rehearsed the images, they looked at them, and so they were finding that after the fact was affecting something that had already occurred, meaning I could rehearse swinging a golf you know, my golf club, which I don't play. I haven't played since I was 12, <laughs> by the way. Um, but it would be the same as rehearsing swinging it um, after you've played the game and then finding that actually that practice after the game affected the game that you had just played three hours earlier. It's extraordinary meaning in that. Yes. Well, there's a very good example of this, and this is in Daryl Bem's study. He's a you know emeritus professor at Cornell University, and He's also a very well-known personality psychologist, and what he showed was that um, in a different example, you know that if you were trying to rehearse, let's see, if you were trying to remember a number of words and you rehearse them before that, let's say 20 words, and you memorize them and you rehearse them over and over, then you'd think that you would have a better response to the memory game. What he showed was that he would present the words, and even if people rehearse them afterwards, they still have better scores on the earlier test. So that was sort of an idea that showed that maybe time doesn't just move forward, but there's some kind of ripple effect where when you rehearse words in the future, it actually impacts your performance in the past. And and I wonder, you know, just thinking about these kinds of when you set up these kinds of amazing experiments of is the person told beforehand that they will be 
rehearsing these later so that intention or attention may play a role, or do they not know that they're going to be given these rehearsals later? No, they don't know. Uh Yeah, we keep them very well blinded, and so people just say, you're going to do a memory test, and so please take this memory test, and they are shown the words, and then they respond, and then half of them are not given any kind of stimulus afterwards, and half of them are where they rehearse the words afterwards, And what we find, strangely, is that the people who rehearsed the words afterwards had better scores ahead of time. Well, thats it's just radical. (laughs) It's like one of the most radical things you can think about, even in terms of impacting historical events or bad things that happen to good people or bad things that happen, you know, to innocent people. And can we go into the future and change the impact of the past? It's, it's, it's um, one of these almost, you know, science fiction kinds of ways of approaching the world in film, like parallel lives and parallel universes. But you all are actually showing that our consciousness is not bound, though we certainly know this from meditation and other kinds of things, that this is like affective calls. Um, We reverse the entire understanding of cause and effect. So it's the chicken or the egg or the egg and the chicken. Look, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back. And then I want to come to some of the other things you've been involved in posting. I love this one that's entitled, There's No Such Thing as an Ego. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, Dr. Cassandra Vitan is our guest. And she is the president and CEO of the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California. You can find them online at www.noetic.org. Hello, I am Amit Goswami, author of The Self-Aware Universe and How Quantum Activism Can Save Civilization. And we're listening to 21st Century Radio with Zohara Anonymous. It's a wonderful show of the new paradigms that is going on right now. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Zoharonymous and Dr. Cassandra Vitan, President and CEO of the Institute of Noetic Sciences joins us. The Noetic Sciences Research, or the research at IONS for short, focuses on, quote, exploring the fundamental nature of consciousness, investigating how it interacts with the physical world, and studying how consciousness can dramatically transform in beneficial ways. So before the break, I mentioned a particular study um, that there's no such thing as ego. But before we get to that, if you don't mind, Cassandra, you all have several areas of research that you focus on. And I thought it might be helpful to sort of go through delineating those. You have consciousness and healing. You have worldview transformation and extended human capacities. Why don't we start with consciousness and healing? Sure. Well, what we're looking at here is, is there a possibility that the intention or attention or beliefs or imagination of the healer or the patient have any involvement in their actual outcomes of healing? So we know from the placebo effect that the expectations of the patient and the beliefs of the patient actually do have an impact on their healing. But what we're looking at is, does the belief system of the healer, do the intentions of the healer, do the beliefs and imagination and dreams of either the healer or the patient, are they involved in their healing process? And so right now what we're looking at is a world where, in general, in Western medicine, um, doctors will prescribe drugs or surgeries and you know these are all very good things that have come from technological advances in healing. 
but it's interesting when I ask an audience that I'm speaking to, how many of you have been to a healing encounter recently in Western medicine at a hospital or a doctor's office where your doctor has actually harnessed the power of your own intention or expectation or belief or their own? You know, have they sat down with you and said, you know, let's just take a few minutes to say, we both hold the intention for your healing. And I would say 95% of people say that it has not happened. And it's just interesting that we've come to a place where the material aspect of healing has been elevated above anything else, but the immaterial aspects where you're looking at how does it work, what, what, what about your beliefs and expectations and behaviors, and what about the kinds of stress reduction activities you might engage in or how you might access the meaning of your illness to you and how you might look into your beliefs about the future, how does that impact your healing? That has been basically excluded from the consciousness and healing discussion. And so what we're trying to do is show evidence and give people practical tools where they can implement not only the Western forms of drugs and surgery and these other things, but also integrate their own the power of their consciousness and the power of their healer's consciousness and their healing. Yeah, we seem as a culture to have eviscerated the imaginal realm and the imagination from being of value. And yet when you look at classical healing across time and within all um, societies where there are sacred healing arts, whether it's herbalism or acupuncture or homeopathy, or uh, there's no question that the imaginal realm plays such a role. And even in traditional healing, of course, the healer needs to be able to listen to the plant to know what the plant is for. So there there mm-hmm. once was, you know, as our um, indigenous peoples of the planet still maintain, thankfully, this inner wisdom tradition that goes on to talk about consciousness is something that is shared vitally between all life forms. So yeah. Bravo. Another one then, of course, I mentioned is the worldview transformation, and that is so profound, and we're beginning to see the impact of how a group of a thousand meditators or a group of a hundred people praying literally can f- change events and weather. Yeah, well, there are some, you know, enticing data that show that collective consciousness can change physical reality, and we do investigate that. And I think that's really important to look at is, you know, to what extent does the belief or story or narrative or worldview of a collective group of people change what's possible? So if you look at, you know, there was a point in time where people said, you know, no one can ever run the four-minute mile. It's impossible. And even some scientists at the time said, you know, anyone who tried to do that might risk heart failure. Well, now running the four-minute mile is the standard of long-distance, you know, our short-distance runners. And so, you know, the way that we look at what's possible collectively is really important to what happens. On the other hand, it's also true that, you know, many, many people have experienced a worldview transformation of their own individually that have changed their lives. And so... You know, we used to think the personality couldn't really change. It was static. You you know, an old dog can't learn new tricks. And now we know that there are times when people undergo deep, profound experiences, sometimes positive and even sometimes negative, where they're looking at the loss of a loved one or a 
dissolution of a relationship or a near-death experience, and they change everything they feel like they knew to be true about their reality, and somehow that change in their belief system changes their entire life. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to look at those changes, especially the positive ones, where people are you know, really changing everything in their life to move from acquisition and um, activities that might benefit themselves but harm others to a place in their lives where they can no longer engage in activities that harm others but benefit themselves, but they see themselves as part of an interconnected whole with all beings, and that makes them kind of naturally move into service to the world. And I know the individuals we've interviewed over the decades who work with children who have near-death experiences have often commented that afterwards these children have such a sense of purpose. They eat better than their peers. (laughs) They definitely know that they're here to do something. I think of the recent um, experiences of the neurosurgeon, Dr. Eben Alexander, how here's one person who, because of his transformative worldview through his own near-death experiences of being in a coma and seeing the afterlife and experiencing this dramatic um, landscape of reality that so many other people now are opened by it. So there's this like almost trigger effect going on right now in terms of mm-hmm. humanity opening up to its potential. And that's your third um, sort of general arena of extended human capacities. So share with us how that points us in the direction that we're headed as a humanity. Yeah, well, I mean, really what we're looking at is what is human potential and what is the nature of reality? And I I remember talking to our founder, Edgar Mitchell, who is the Apollo 14 astronaut and sixth person to walk on the moon. This was about a year ago where I said, you know, Edgar, what are you up to now? And he said, well, we've been taught that the universe is made of matter and energy. And what I think is it's made of matter, energy, and consciousness. And when we say consciousness, what we mean is awareness or um, intention, intuition, subjective experience. In other words, how do we look at the world? And maybe this is a third force in the nature of reality and our potential. And so what we're really looking at is how does this third force impact what we think we're able to do and what we're actually able to do? Is it possible that what we have been doing up until now and what we thought we were capable of is maybe only a small percentage of what we're capable of. And so we're looking at these interesting anomalies where it seems like some people are able to perceive information through a distance, where people are able to perceive information through other than their five senses, where people perceive information into the future, And not only that, where people really can't change their lives and their lifestyles in fundamental ways that make them not only find more meaning and purpose and hope and joy in the world, but also make them be more of service to the world and cause these transformations in other people. Yeah, and when you look at, as I mentioned, if people go to your website, noetic N-O-E, TIC.org. I loved this model, the consciousness transformation model, this beautiful blue snail-like curve. And it starts with first the individual having a noetic experience, and sometimes people will deny it. And then you go through this exploration, and then you find a practice, 
and then you have life as a practice, and you're still sort of focused on yourself, but then it switches mm-hmm. from I to we, and mm-hmm. then you forget the we to me, and you become sort of a deeper living person, and you bring to mm. community um, all that you've enjoyed learning and exploring about, and then there's a collective transformation. So the model says is that these these experiences, these noetic experiences that all of us have are a rich addition to the tapestry of the collective well-being of our society. And our feeling, and one of the reasons we do 21st Century Radio and continue to support this model of sharing information is that people just don't realize that the common, unusual experience they're having is being had by billions of other people planet-wide. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, that model came out of, first of all, having hundreds of stories of people's transformations being sent into us, people who had had radical transformations in their worldview. And then we did focus groups with people who taught transformative practices from a variety of the world's traditions. Then we did a study where we looked at uh, 60 masters and teachers of people who taught thousands of students in transformation. And then we did surveys with thousands of people who had experienced their own personal transformations in their lives. So this was about a decade of research that led to this model where we said, okay, no matter what the experience is, whether it was an illness or an experience of awe and wonder or reading a book or meeting someone or a near-death experience, you know, there's all different ways that people get there, but there are some common elements where, as you said, you know, first of all, people have this moment where they say, wait a minute, there's something much bigger happening here than I thought there was. That sends them into a phase of seeking and trying to find other people who have had these experiences, and if they do that, they find that there are thousands or millions of people who have had this awakening moment where they said, wait, What I've been taught is not adequate to explain the full range of human experience. And then they move on to creating practices and ways that they can apply it in their everyday lives. And then eventually, most of these people end up moving toward a place where they're bringing it back to the community and somehow inspiring others. And this could be as simple as if you're a school teacher, being a different kind of school teacher, to creating, you know, NGOs that you know, impact millions or thousands of people, you know, to being someone who is just a radiant sort of example in your everyday life where people are attracted to a new way of being. When you look at some of the longitudinal studies you've done, you've you've done this to show that um, a spiritual engagement of self-transcendence um, leads to humans flourishing. I mean, there have been all kinds of studies in our own country between the red and the blue states, and the red states yeah. um, are are just a miserable place to live, and you're more likely as a child to be abused in a red state than in a blue state. And blue states, they talk about longevity having a great deal to do with personal freedom, and the less personal freedom a culture or an individual has, the shorter their life, the less healthy they are, and the more prone they are to violence and addiction. So these aren't little things. These are these are true, factual studies now of, of both mundane data and then spiritual data. So it, it's very clear, as you all point to, that there really is a science to things such as peace. I recently interviewed Jason Gregory, who's written a beautiful book called The Science and Practice of Humility. Tell us about the Science of Peace Project. 
Well, the science of peace is really looking at people who are trying to create peace in the world. And in general, these are activists. They're people who are trying to negotiate peaceful solutions. They're trying to deliver peaceful messages. And what we learned was that, in general, when people are really trying to get a good message into the world, like peace, they first start with information and you know, it may be, let's look at environmental change, for example. You know, let's say, okay, look, everybody, there's an environmental problem, there's a drought, or there's an um, ozone hole. And information actually doesn't change people all that much. We wish it would, but it doesn't. Then they move to motivation, where they say, okay, let's make you a little bit more scared. Like, you know, hey, look, we're all going to run out of water, or, they're, you know, we're really not going to survive past 30 years, or there's going to be peak oil. And strangely, even that motivation doesn't change people. And so what we're looking at in the science of peace is saying, what is it that changes people? If it's not information, it's not motivation, what we really think it is is worldview transformation. And what that means is that you've got to give people direct and personal experiences of how these things are happening in the world And that might be anything from taking them to actually view some of the consequences to helping them engage in transformational practices that connect them with the world. Um, It's hard to say, you know, I think there's infinite number of ways to connect people with that. But what we want to do is say, look, you know, as soon as you have this experience where you realize that you cannot engage in behaviors that benefit yourself while harming others, because there really are no others. It's a very small planet. So if you realize that whatever you do in this world, if it is enhancing the health and uh, freedom and beauty and inclusion of the world, that's good. If you're excluding and you're relying on fear or um, violence, it's probably not going to lead to a better world than that transformation in itself is what causes peace. And what we know is that we can create the ideal conditions for a peaceful environment, but we can't make it happen. We can't tell someone, you should be this way. We can say, look, let's give you the soil and nutrients and sunlight and water that you need to grow this garden. And once you are in that space where you see that the natural process can be peaceful instead of violent, then you might go along with that. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've you hit on a subject that has interested me for more than a decade, and I often bring it up when I talk with elder activists, myself being one, of how there are many of us who think information is enough. And we thought it was enough because we're information people. You show us what's true, and we go, oh, well, let's change this. And then yeah. you, you mentioned motivation, and, and this is what the far right does all the time is it's all scare tactics. Everything yeah. is about fear, separation, um, you know, exclusivity, scarcity, attack, terror. And then you mentioned, so motivation doesn't work. And then you went to the direct and personal experience of giving mm-hmm. people some small way of experiencing the information and the motivation and the change that you're pointing to. You've helped me a lot. I mean, it's a very little thing to you, I suspect, in saying that. But I can't tell you how many elders 
I have had this conversation with about our frustration after 30 years, 40 years mm -hmm. of doing this work. We, we really did anticipate a very different today than we have. We, I don't think, even though we all foresaw the corporatization and the global fascism that we literally have through government and corporate collusion, but I don't think, at least I'll speak for myself, I really thought we'd be further along with environmental protection. I really thought we'd be along with greater social justice. And I really felt that we would have done a much better job of reversing the uh, poor stewardship of our planet. So you've given me an, my own little sort of new thing to meditate on, which is how to create direct and personal experiences for people in each of these themed arenas. It's yeah, so yeah, obvious. It's why really why didn't I think of that? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember um, interviewing Ram Dass, who was an activist in the 60s, and, you know, he's very a, a beloved spiritual teacher. And I asked him, you know, what do you think about where we are now? And he said, well, you know, we thought we would be further, but in the 60s, when we were fighting against what was happening, we actually hated the people who were doing it. We mm -hmm. literally hated them. We wanted that's to true. Get, it, was a, know, it was an inner war. Them. I think that's very true. Yeah. Yeah, and he said, you know, now I realize that what we have to do is include them mm -hmm. and, in a strange way, love them and yeah. say, look, here's the deal. You know, this is relevant to you, not just to us. And I also remember working from with someone who was from Amnesty International, and he was working with us. And I said, well, why are you working with us now instead of Amnesty? That seems like such a bigger project. And he said, well, you know, amnesty is great, except that they're still looking for the bad people. Mm -hmm. And they're looking for the bad people and to put them away. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, it's likely that there are no bad people. It's just that we are all enacting a shadow and golden side of ourselves. And so, you know, it's not good enough to say we've got to eliminate the bad people. We have to say... How have we all created this together, and how can we all seek forgiveness and some collective way of moving forward? Mm -hmm. Though I have to take a break. It's very difficult when you listen to somebody from Monsanto, you know, give their yes. lip service to health and holiness when it's <laughs> disease and destruction that they're actually seeding in the world. So it's, it is difficult, and the patience part of peacemaking requires such a maturity and an appreciation that change is slow for the world, but sometimes it can happen quickly when enough of us um, embrace it all. We'll be right back. Our guest is Dr. Cassandra Vitin. She's president and CEO of the Institute for Noetic Sciences. Find them at www.noetic.org. Hello, this is Dr. Evan Alexander, author of Proof of Heaven and the Map of Heaven. You can learn more about me at www.evanalexander.com. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Remember, we have links to all our guests and their websites. If you're driving around or someplace you can't write down their website, 21st21stcenturyradio.com. And, of course, we have a free audio archive, which is not all that common in commercial radio anymore. But we feel that the program we do is really a service, and that's why we do what we do. Dr. Cassandra Vitin, who is the president and CEO of the Institute for Noetic Sciences, is with us. You can learn more about their beautiful work at www.noetic.org. 
org and visit the Psy Arcade. I actually, um, Cassandra, went to the Psy Arcade today and I tried my hand a little bit. I don't think I did so great, but it was really quite fun. I mean, it's not one of those competitive kill your enemy kind of game. It's these really Psy oriented you know, how telepathic are you? How well into the future can you see? Tell us a little bit about this development. Well, we do have some fun online experiments, and we do use them as actual experiments. And so the Psy Arcade is one where you can go in and play some games that kind of seem like games, but we're actually collecting data and seeing how well people do at, you know, guessing future events or, you know, doing some kind of healing modality I think it's really helpful, and it's a good way of engaging a new generation. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have an online experiment that literally tries to look at mind-matter interactions in the laboratory. So we have an ongoing physics experiment in the lab where people from all around the world are trying to influence the physics experiment using their mind. And what we found over the last several years is that among thousands of people, what we ask them to do is turn their attention toward the system for maybe a minute and turn it away and then turn it toward the system for another minute and turn it away for a minute. And over thousands and thousands of trials, what we find is that when people are turning their attention toward the system, there's supposed to be kind of a randomness in the system and it's, it's engineered that way. What we find is that when people are paying attention, the randomness goes away. And it's a very strong effect where when people are looking at it across the world, it moves toward more coherence or less randomness. And strangely, it doesn't seem to be connected to how far away they are. So it could be someone who is 30 miles away. It could be someone who's 3,000 miles away. And the same thing happens. So we're just investigating What does it mean that when someone pays attention to a system, even if it's across a large distance, and they they record when they're paying attention and not, how can that change that system? And we're kind of looking at this concept of entanglement in physics where there are some good data showing that particles that are entangled, they call it in physics, and they're taken far, far away. When you spin one one way, the other one still spins the other way. And it doesn't seem to be bound in space and time. So it's this very small clue right now that maybe these experiences where people feel like they're interconnected with everyone and that there's no kind of space or time in their meditations or in their experiences, there might be some physical reality to that. Well, you've certainly heard, you know, people meeting on the meditative plane and not having ever met physically. And then five or six years later, they might bump into each other and go, oh, my Lord, you're that person that I kept seeing in meditation. But is this the New Sphere project you're referring to? Uh, What did you say? Is this the New Sphere project, the one with the EGG project? Or were you describing something different? Yeah, it doesn't sound familiar. Well, this this was the one with the um, 65 host sites around the world that have the random generators, which you find there's coherence when everybody, like when, I remember when Princess Di um, died, there there had been this randomness, and all of a sudden there was this great coherence to these number generators worldwide showing 
that when a group of us focus on the same thing at the same time, we bring coherence around that particular subject, which also shows the power of when there's devastation or earth changes, how much literally we can all be of service to the communities being deeply affected. And that's one of the things I often bring up when we watch the news of if you're watching it, you know, turn your heart towards the suffering of the mm-hmm. people you're watching and ask that they be elevated. At least that's what I do. Otherwise, I can't bear the news, quite frankly. Yeah, if I yeah. can't turn it into a service, I can't watch it. So um, yeah. when you started your work, where were you and how has the needle moved in all these decades, Cassandra? Well, I think for me, um, you know, I was about 18 when I first started to think, um, I wonder if there's some some kind of way that my experiences that I'm learning through, let's say, meditation or yoga or Buddhism, is there any science about these? And so I started to look into it, and there wasn't much back then. And so I kept going, and I went into a program for psychology that included Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, kind of indigenous perspectives into Western psychology And I thought, well, this is great, and I got it, and I think there is a connection, but there's not much science. So I went to train at UC San Francisco, and I went almost completely to the other side where I was learning about genetics and biology and addictions and, you know, what what were the brain and biological bases of these things. And so I got to learn a lot about that over 12 years. But when I got too far that way, I thought, you know, this doesn't seem to include anything about the spirit of the soul. So... When I went to my internet browser, I put in science and spirituality, and I found the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and it was five minutes from my house, (laughs) and I had never heard of it. So I drove there and said, you know, hey, I really think that there's something here at this nexus point between hard science and subjective spiritual experience. And they said, well, that's what we've been working on for 40 years, so why don't you come here? And so since then, it's been about 15 years, and I was first a research assistant and then the director of research, and now I'm the CEO and president. And it's quite an honor to be the seventh president of IONS. And there's been a, you know, massive um, uh, expansion of this kind of research. I know that IONS in the beginning funded some of the first studies on meditation and some of the first studies on love and forgiveness and gratitude. And now those are multi-million dollar efforts in multiple universities across the country And so that's what IONS tries to do is say, okay, now that that's being dealt with, how do we push the next boundary of what people typically think can't be studied by science? But, of course, we know that science is just a method. It's a way of investigating something. And, of course, you can apply it to almost anything. And so we're looking at things that are out in the further reaches now, and that's why we call what we do frontier science. You also have a leadership training program. We do. I mean, what we're looking at now is what is the effect of people's worldview on how they approach reality? So really, the story that you tell yourself about reality determines a lot of what you perceive. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, many people think, well, there's one reality and I'm going to go to school and I'm going to learn all the answers. And once I learn all the answers, then I'm going to be in leadership and business for the rest of my life. And the truth is that those answers, there is no way in the modern world to know the answer to everything. In fact, what you need to do is understand that there are rapidly changing scenarios and narratives all the time based on the um, the 
unprecedented um, interaction between cultures and worldviews and societies and races, but there's also kind of an unprecedented intersection of science and spirit. And so if you go into the world thinking, I know the truth and my job is to express that to people and to dominate people with that truth, you're going to be less of a good leader than someone who goes in and says, I have a great working hypothesis based on what I know, but I'm always open to learning something new based on what other people experience and then what I personally experience. It's a very different way of looking at the world. I think there was a time maybe 30 years ago where you could become a master in your profession by learning everything there was to know about it. And now there's no way to do that. You have to learn to navigate this massive influx of new information, both from the external world and from the internal world. Right. You know, sometimes I think we mistake the external world as the only barometer of what's going on. And when we look at the Internet and the kind of images and information people are exposed to all the time, I find that people's attention span is becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. And that's something that really concerns me because so much of this inner work is about prolonged attention. And holding images, as is prophecy. It's really about being able to hold images. And when you're inundated all the time by these split-second, you know, calls epilepsy kind of um, work, it's very difficult, I think, to bring people to their feeling state of their heart. Yeah, yeah. I had a friend who called um, going to the Internet like drinking from a fire hose. You know, there's so much information that you can barely put it in. And so it turns out that the future is more about discernment and navigation than it is about memorizing information. Mm-hmm. And that has yet to make its way into our educational culture. Mm-hmm. You know, for many people still, education is memorize everything and feed it back to us. And I think the future of education is going to be how can you navigate the flow of information that's coming in and equally value your inner knowing and your hunches and your gut and your intuition as much as you value external evidence and data. And really, I'm I'm very serious that the external evidence and data should not be discounted at all. It should be taken into account, but also your internal knowing and intuition and hunches should be taken into account. Exactly. And it's the nexus of those two that you reach a truth. Exactly. Thank you for joining us. And that's what Edgar Mitchell wanted, is that our knowledge will become wisdom, our love of power will become power of love, and universal human of cosmic consciousness can then emerge. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. And I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And remember, we do need more love in the world.